ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What would I be if I was a dog? Turbo, obviously. Um, unique personality type. The athlete, the, dog, the nose the dog, the couch potato, the dig dog, the smart cookie. Um, let's go with the diggity doggity. Turbo, here we go. This is What the Duck, the program that picks up every rocket walks past just in case there's a mystery underneath. I'm Ann Jones. And you may ask yourself, how did Ann Jones, the otherwise ethically untouchable angel, come to be impersonating a dog on the internet? Well, I blame Skylar. Hi, Ann. My name is Skylar Seltzer and I teach second grade. This is what happens when you email the What the Duck Squad. I have a question about how scientists determine that an animal is a new species. Is it just physical characteristics that they see that an average person wouldn't notice? And how are species characterized prior to DNA analysis technology? Oh, Lord of the Earth's genetic material, why? This is one of those questions where you'd think... It'd be easy peasy. It is fraught with controversy. But it's the opposite of easy peasy. It's something that could turn into sort of an academic Twitter fight at literally any moment. Let's get ready to rumble. Skylar sounded very confident that DNA technology would be able to tell us who is a separate species from what. So, will a commercially available test be able to tell a dog from a human? Now, you might remember Henry from the second ever episode of What the Duck, where we talked about why some animals eat feces. Henry is the sort of dog that has cost his owner several thousand dollars in vet bills to get his stomach pumped because he eats the crutch out of any undies that get left on the floor. Which brings us to my best friend, Beans. Hi. And her dog, Henry. Oh, thanks, Henry. He's just going to... Have a poo right next to you there, Anne, sorry. (laughs) And that sets the tone for the visit too. Henry is, uh, actually I'll let Beans explain that. He's a puggle cross puggleer, so there's pug beagle and pug cavalier. Or is he? So, here we are at Beans' house again. Is that Henry? Henry! To get some DNA samples. Henry and I are taking a DNA test to see what dog breed we are. Um, You know that I had to fill in some data about Henry. Did you? Yeah, and I had to fill in some data about me. Anyway, my new name is Turbo. (laughs) Use all the swabs to collect your sample. Gently rub the swab on the inside of your dog. Anyone who's ever tried to give their dog or a child a COVID test will understand how the next bit went. You're going to hate this, mate. Disgusting. You're my oldest friend. What breed do you think I am? Ooh. (laughs) There'd have to be a bit of terrier in there. (laughs) You may now refer to me as Turbo Jones. Anyway, we'll pop those in the mail and see what sort of breed I am once and for all. And in the meantime, let's sit down and discuss. What is a species? I'm a bit nervous about this question today, I think. (laughs) Off to a flying start. Dr Nicola Rivers is from Monash University. She's a reproductive biologist who works in the conservation arena, freezing DNA samples of endangered wildlife. Well, you reached out and said that you wanted to know what a species is. Yeah. It should be a relatively simple question, but it's actually quite a complicated topic. At a very fundamental 
basic level. A species is just a label that humans have developed to be able to kind of categorize like our observations of living organisms. In reality, nature is very sort of, it's nature, it's wild. It doesn't align to any rules or rhythms that we might want to apply to it. So we want to give it a label, but it doesn't necessarily stick with our labels all of the time. And there are many ways to cut the species cake. Probably the easiest to understand is morphology, or what something looks like. Thinking back to like the very early classification of species, so sort of clustering things based on their physical appearance. So humans look a lot like other humans, but we look very different, like chimpanzees, so we're different species. The long tradition has been to look at the size, the shape, and the colour of organisms, their appearance, and make decisions on whether or not they are members of the same or different species. That's Paul Hebert, Canada Research Chair in Molecular Biology and Biodiversity at the University of Guelph. And in taxonomy, the observations of the characteristics get really, really specific. It's not just how many legs. Entomologists spend a lot of their time dissecting invertebrate genitals and looking at them under a microscope to figure out who is who. The idea is that how you look groups you together with your fellow species mates. But then there are other cases where members of the same species might look very different, particularly when we look at sexual dimorphism, which is when a male and a female look really different. Think African lions. The male and the female sort of look like they could be from different species. Or think of some of the species of ants where workers look entirely different from soldiers or butterflies from one stage of life to the next. You'd absolutely think they were different species. They're obviously part of the same species, but they look different. So the whole sort of idea of classifying things around morphology alone doesn't really stack up as well. Looks, so says my mum, are not everything. And take it from her, her daughter works in radio. And are there other drawbacks to dividing species by looks alone? Yes, it's not very scalable. The pioneers in this field of science thought there might only be 10 or 20,000 species. We now know that that was a huge underestimate. 270 years in, we've registered about 1.7 million species morphologically. Best estimates today are there may be somewhere between 20, 30, 40 million species of multicellular life. We're not going to be able to do it morphologically. Even if you index the book, if you like, if you create that library of life and you've got a page for each species, How do you recognize it when you next encounter it? It's simply impossible with morphological approaches. So to return to the question from Skylar about how do you tell when you come across a new species, there are other ways to divide species up. You can use geography to help. Flies on this side of the mountain range are western, and those ones are eastern. And then, well, there's sex. There's always sex. A group of individuals like our own, A species, members of it can interbreed, produce offspring, and we can't interbreed with chimpanzees and produce offspring with them. Therefore, we are a different species. This is called the biological species concept. Link Olson is a professor of biology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I would argue that most empirical biologists would agree that 
species are biological entities that are able to reproduce with one another and produce viable offspring. And the reason viable reproduction is important is because that's how mutations get passed along to subsequent generations. Makes sense. Favorable mutations are the, um, the DNA of evolution. We have sort of a biological classification system where we define things based on their ability to breed with each other. It's not perfect, but people tend to sit with that definition quite comfortably most of the time. But there's mules and hinnies and ligers and tigons. So these animals are producing offspring. Does that mean they're not separate species? A hybrid is an individual whose two parents were different species. Hey, wait, before we get to hybrids, let's get off at a different floor and take a side quest. Defining a species on who can breed successfully with who is imperfect because not everyone needs someone else to breed. Think asexual reproduction in some plants or all of the single-cell organisms that we have on this planet or organisms that just snap off a bit of themselves and grow like a starfish or parthenogenesis where, because you don't have access to sperm, you just DIY it with an egg. Anyway, here comes a lift, so let's get back to it. A hybrid is an individual whose two parents were different species. Leo Joseph is the director of the National Wildlife Collection at the CSIRO. Here in Canberra, for example, we see hybrids between crimson and eastern rosellas. Yes, the eastern rosella is on the sauce bottle and the crimson is the same sort of shape but with a dark velvety red colour. We know that different species can hybridise, but does it go anywhere? Do you end up with a hybrid species? In that case, you don't. It just means that they retain enough genetic material in common that they're able to hybridise. There are a lot of critics of the biological species definition. I mean, I'm a great fan of it, but it doesn't say that you can't have interbreeding. Tim Lowe has entered the chat. Biologist, author. Please be on your best behaviour, everyone. I don't want to be embarrassed. And that's definitely the case with Rawnsley's Bowerbird. You've probably never heard of it because this thing is extremely rare. It was shot in 1867 by a naturalist, uh, Rawnsley. Ah, yes. Did I mention that to describe a species, you have to have a dead specimen. This is called a type specimen, and it forms an integral part of the taxonomic process, a species blueprint against which other specimens will be measured. Anyway, back to this weird bowerbird. It was described as his bowerbird, Rawnsley's bowerbird. Beautiful bird. Never seen it myself. Dark, dark blue with these beautiful golden patches on its wings. Now, if you think of the bowerbirds in southeast Queensland, we've got the regent bowerbird. A stunning bird. The male's plumage is black and yellow. Its colours are so crisp and so saturated, it looks like an AI render of a bird. And there's also the more common satin bowerbird, the male of which is the darkest blue-purple imaginable, so dark that it looks black. Rawnsley's bowerbird, though, that's a mix of the two. People almost never saw them again. I mean, this one bird was shot in Brisbane, and shortly after, an explorer claimed to have seen one in central Queensland. 
but then no more was seen. So, yeah, that's well recognised as something that was thought to be a species. But it wasn't. It was a hybrid. And what's even loopier about it is that the parent birds aren't even in the same genus. Lions and tigers are both Pantera. Donkeys and horses are both Equus. But one of the bowerbirds is in the Patillonorhynchus and the other is in the Sericulus. They absolutely should not be able to produce offspring. So hybridisation happens all the time. The, the tools of genomics tell us that it happens even more than we thought. You know, here in Australia, we've detected more often than we, we knew it was happening. And these interspecies sexy romps could be happening in your backyard. We have these hybrids sometimes turning up between the superb fairy wren. Now, the males of those, beautiful, beautiful, rich blue and black. But they were hybridised with the red-backed fairy wren. The male of that is red and black. Now, birds have got good colour vision, so there's no way you would think that a bird that's conditioned to like blue suddenly likes red. What we do know is that there's a lot of promiscuity in fairy wrens. So the males sneak out of their nest in the pre-dawn, as soon as there's enough light, sneak around to other nests and try and mate with other females that are roosting in the low bushes. The females can't see much in that light. And so the female looks the same to the male. Female can't properly see the male. And so you're just occasionally getting these interesting hybrids turning up. A one-night stand that leads to strange little baby birds. But there's no evidence that these matings are having any influence on the species being two separate entities. Like, they they don't um, threaten the concept of the biological species. And are hybrids capable of reproducing? Well, sometimes no, and sometimes yes. Yes, the the black-eared minor hybrids, they are reproductively fertile. Black-eared miners are extremely rare birds only found in tiny patches of mallee. Yellow-throated miners are much more widespread, and both of them look like the noisy miners that you have in cities. But they're all different species, previously separated by habitat needs. Not anymore. That's a large part of the concern, that it's very easy to see a future in which there are no black-eared miners left because they've all bred with hybrids which are quite successful in the landscape. In part because the habitat was changed on a huge scale after 1950. We've basically gotten rid of the Mallee since then. The black-eared miner doesn't have a future without conservation intervention. I mean, it's a dependence on people to continue in the future. It will hybridise out of existence. I mean, the other thing we could do is replant vast areas of Mali and that would hopefully help them survive on their own. So is hybridisation the best way for any of these birds to survive in this future landscape? Or should we protect the genetics of the black-eared miners even though we've hardly got any of their habitat left? And at what point do these separate species come together and create something new? Then we get into these debates that are, are they one species, are they two species? Leo Joseph from the Wildlife Collection, a genomics fanboy. You know, when you look at a crimson and an eastern rosella, it's a bit like looking at low power. But when you can go down to DNA and the genome, it's like switching to high power on a microscope. The use of genetics, it's revolutionised 
the species concept. I mean, it's resulted in recognition of a lot more species. These are called cryptic species. They're hiding in plain sight. They look exactly the same as their cousins, but they have very different genetics. Lizards, snails, the sugar glider and long-eared bats, you name it, there's probably a cryptic species in there somewhere. Then we get into the world of species that no one would ever question that it was a separate species. Like the eastern and the pale-headed rosella, perhaps. But when you get down to its genome, you find that there's what's called admixture. You can see a footprint in the genome of an otherwise perfectly distinctive-looking species of hybrid ancestry, and that could be very ancient when, they, when the things were evolving, or it could be from very recent gene flow between species. And in fact, genomes and genomics have taught us that much of the genome might be being exchanged between what we perceive as quite distinct species, and there's just a few genes that are controlling the difference between them. I think people disagree on what percentage different in our DNA do we need to be to be able to say we're separate species. People disagree on that. From my sort of reading around, I've sort of found a lot of people say like maybe 2%. 2%. So maybe that's the only difference in the DNA between me and a raven, or me and Henry the dog. It's been a couple of weeks now and I'm still waiting for the results, but I have been talking to family and friends to take suggestions on what sort of breed I'd be just in case the way I look has any bearing on my dog breed. Definitely a, a bird dog. It's, it's easy to go through what you're not. You're not a pug. Pointers are dumb. I'll, I'll go for a setter, but they're not real bright either. But they're, they're loyal. Not a sausage dog. Border Collie. Not a German Shepherd. Oh, you're a cheery sort of a person and you're here, there and everywhere and... Not a schnauzer. Outthinking me. <laughs> There's a touch of whippet in there, but maybe some shih tzu? So a shit whip. <laughs> maybe it's just because of detective TV shows, but surely DNA will hold all the answers to what is a species and what isn't. Science fiction isn't a type of science, it's a type of fiction. Link Olsen. I think people go to movies and see these magical instruments that we can wave over animals and it tells us whether or not it's a species and we're not there yet. We're also still employing some conventional tools, comparative morphology. We look at teeth and bones and skulls and presence or absence of certain features and try to compile as much evidence as we can to find where we see concordance. But we use every tool in our arsenal, and that includes DNA, and, and now we've moved squarely into the genomics era. So recapping, your species is what you look like, where you are, who you breed with, and a species should have its own unique genome. This is, I think, the most recent way we have of defining which species is what and what is new. And as Link Olsen just said, it's the genomics era. One of the ways that scientists are harnessing that to identify species is through a process called DNA barcoding. The notion that you don't need to look at all of the DNA in an organism to tell species apart. You only need to look at a tiny fraction of it. Paul Hebert from the University of Guelph. In fact, about a millionth of the genome will be enough to discriminate the animal species that share our planet. Actually, Paul is one of the people behind DNA barcoding. 
when we proposed the idea 20 years ago, we didn't have a lot of data and it provoked uh, a modest furor. And it worked better than I could have hoped. 15 million specimens have been analyzed so far and the collective effort has revealed about a million species of animals so far. So DNA barcoding began with the notion that every species would have its own unique DNA. The idea was that you could go to an easy to study piece of DNA, which was called the CO1 gene of mitochondrial DNA, and every species would have its own unique CO1 sequence. And it would be akin to a barcode. And that's the idea. But Leo, you sound a bit iffy, really. Does barcoding work? Uh, a lot of the time, it works. <laughs> a lot of the time, it seems to <laughs> it seems to marry up well with the things we call species. Just like the other ways of dividing species, the DNA barcoding method is great in almost all cases. Something like ninety five percent of cases, according to Paul. But just like the other models. There can be issues, and Leo Joseph is on the case of the chestnut and grey teal ducks. We've looked across the genome, genetic differences between these two very different ducks, you know, <laughs> what the duck, and no one's out there saying chestnut teal and grey teal are one species. But the only place we've found any genetic difference is on the sex chromosome, the Z chromosome, and that is a very telling case so barcoding just won't work it just won't work with cases like that so what about dog versus human would barcoding work for the samples that henry and i sent in for analysis would one of us become a home dna test kit reject let's uh log in henry is according to beans He's Pug Beagle Cavalier. And the speculation is that our nearest common ancestor in the evolutionary tree is about 100 million years ago. So that's a lot of time to gather different bits of DNA with hybrid events and mutations. All right. Yes. We have the results. Okay. Henry is a pug cross, oh. consisting of the following breeds, Beagle, Cavalier, King yes. Charles, Spaniel. Hey. Hey. Turns out he's legit. He's legit. Well, there you go. The question is... What is turbo? What is turbo? Oh, here we go. All right. Oh. This is a courtesy. Email advise you that your sample for turbo has failed. Oh. The only thing it proves, as far as I can tell, is that I'm not a dog. Yes. But it doesn't prove that I'm a human. No, so they haven't been able to detect that. Yeah, because they weren't testing for it. Yeah. I mean, I could be... I could be an ice cream. You could be... A okay. cat. I've always suspected it. The reality of trying to label things in nature is that nature abhors set labels. When we started thinking about trying to delineate species in nature, I think we all kind of pretended to agree that speciation wasn't ongoing and that there weren't species out there in nature at every conceivable stage of the speciation process. Because once we acknowledged and accepted that, we had to accept that there will be gray areas.
evolution is ongoing and it's a moving feast of genes that shows no sign of slowing down. That is the beauty of evolution, I think. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning, you know. Oh, that's good, Leo. Trying to understand it is sending me to an early grave. So Skylar, who sent in the easy question about how scientists know when they're looking at a new species, I can report that the relationship between scientists and species definitions, well, they're committed, but it's complicated. What the Duck is an ABC RN and ABC Science podcast. I'm Turbo Jones and Patria Ladgrove and I produce this program on the unceded lands of the Wadawurrung and Ghana people. Special thanks to Beans and Henry, of course, and Ying Law and Leo Joseph for the behind-the-scenes explanations of very complicated things. This is our last program for the year and, quite frankly, I want to spend my holiday like Paul. Oh, yes. Nothing makes me happier on Christmas Day than collecting a few insects. So I'll actually be in Australia collecting a few insects. Uh, You know, I don't want a Christmas tree. I want a few insects uh, that I can admire. Don't we all? You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.